We'll hear argument now in number 89, <coughs> excuse me, 839, uh, Arizona versus Areste Fulminante. Uh, Ms. Jarrett. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This case presents two separate issues, a voluntariness issue regarding a, a confession and a harmless error issue. I will be... I do not know if the Court will need to decide both of these, Your Honor. Well, if, uh, you win if we decide either, way, either one of them your way. That is correct. I will be addressing the voluntariness issue, and Mr. Larkin from the Solicitor General's office will be addressing the harmless error issue. At Oreste Fulminante's trial for first-degree murder, two separate confessions were introduced against him over his objection. The first was a confession that he made while he was incarcerated in in a federal prison. He made the first confession to a a fellow inmate who was, in reality, an FBI informant. The second confession Mr. Fulminante made was six, six months after the first one. It was after he had been released from the federal prison and was no longer uh, an inmate. He made this confession to Donna Saravola, who was at that time uh, Mr. Saravola's fiance. They were shortly thereafter married. Prior to trial, uh, Mr. Fulminante filed his motion, voluntariness motion for a hearing. There was a Jackson versus Dino hearing in the trial court, but no witnesses were called at this hearing. The defense agreed to the stipula- a stipulated set of facts that were set forth in the, in the prosecutor's trial response. The trial court ruled on the voluntariness issue and, and other issues regarding both of these confessions based upon oral argument by the parties and the stipulated facts. The court ruled that the first confession, the one to the inmate informant, was voluntarily made. The court specifically found it was not the result of any promises, threats, or coercion by any government agent. The court found it was fully voluntary. The court also found that the second confession to the inmate informant's wife was also uh, voluntarily made and was not the fruit of the poisonous tree, as the defendant argued. On direct appeal, after Mr. Fulminante had been convicted of first-degree murder, On his direct appeal, he re-raised the voluntariness question. He claimed in the Arizona Supreme Court that this this confession to the inmate informant had, in fact, been coerced by a promise of protection. And in in examining that issue, was the Arizona Supreme Court confined just to the suppression motion that the judge ruled on, or could it and should it also take into account the evidence that might have been given at trial on the point? The court did consider the evidence at trial, and I, I believe it was proper for the court to do so. The Arizona court has as always, as a matter of Arizona law, whether it's constitutionally required or not, has looked to the entire trial record in determining whether a confession is coerced. And if we hear that issue, we look at the same same testimony? That is correct, Your Honor. I believe it would be proper for this court to also examine the entire record, which is what... Well, don't we owe some deference to the uh, court's findings and of uh, um, a coerced confession? 
Your Honor, I believe the only deference that this Court owes to the Arizona Supreme Court regarding the coerced confession is to the facts, the underlying facts that the Arizona Supreme Court found in regard to the confession. The question whether the the confession was actually coerced is a matter of, of federal constitutional law, which this Court should resolve with a due deference to the Arizona Supreme Court's finding. But that but court drew some inferences from the trial court record and on that basis made its finding of, of coercion. It's a little hard for us to undo that, don't you think? Your Honor, I respectfully disagree. And one reason I disagree is that the Arizona court determined, as a matter of fact, that Fulminante was in danger while in prison. And this is not borne out by the record. The only evidence in the record, and this is from Saravola's trial testimony, is that it is possibly a prison inf- or a prisoner who is known to have killed a child or be a child murderer would be in, in danger while in prison. This was not a stipulated fact that was before the trial judge when he made his finding, and there is simply no evidence in the record regarding that particular fact. So that is why the state contends that the Arizona court's finding of involuntariness is based in large part upon its finding that this promise of protection was so incredibly coercive because Mr. Fulminante was in actual danger while he was in prison. Well, I, I thought that uh, Saravola said, uh, that's his name, that uh, uh, he was going to be carried out horizontally and so forth. That is a portion of the record. That was not part of the evidence before the trial judge. A portion of his interview with the defense counsel prior to trial was attached to one of the pleadings, and he did speculate in that particular portion of the interview that that was his feeling. But that was not uh, uh, recounted again at trial? No. The defense attorney at trial never asked him whether Mr. Fulminante was in actual danger or asked him his feelings about the danger to Fulminante. And the only, the only evidence that there was even a remote possibility was that there was a stipulated fact that Fulminante had been receiving some sort of rough treatment and whatnot is the phrase Saravola used from the other prisoners. But no one ever asked Fulminante or Saravola what this rough treatment consisted of. And the record is just unclear on that. But in any event, he ne- Fulminante did not ask Saravola for protection. He never indicated that he was in need of protection. And even after Saravola made this offer of protection to him, He merely told him about the murder during their casual conversation without saying, now are you going to help me? So that is the reason that I believe that this court should not defer to the Arizona Supreme Court's finding of law in regard to the voluntariness without first reexamining the record to see if there is any evidence of actual danger to Fulminante. Mr. Jarrett, you you concede, however, that... uh that the uh, the FBI informant before the immediately before the conversation at which the confession was made uh, did refer to the fact that uh, the defendant had been receiving hard treatment. He heard the defendant had been receiving hard treatment from uh, 
from other inmates and that he could protect him from that, but if he, if he wanted such protection, he'd have to be open with him about everything. That is a fair statement, Your Honor. And you, you, you can see that all of that was in the record? That is all in the record, Your Honor. In regard to the, the state's contention that the Arizona court not only ruled incorrectly on the voluntariness issue, it is the state's contention that the court actually applied an incorrect standard in ruling on the voluntariness issue. The court, in effect, found a promise resulting in a confession and stated that it was a coerced confession without ever examining one of the most important facts or one of the most important circumstances in the case, whether Fulminante was a person whose will could easily be overborne by a promise of protection. And when uh, Fulminante's character is examined, it's very clear that he is not such a person. When he made this admission to Saravola, he went into great detail about the terrible way in which he had killed his young stepdaughter, and he used the phrase that he had clipped her. He did not show any remorse or or anything of that nature. He went into the details, and there's a, a, a finding by the Arizona court that and this is in the appendix to the petition at A76, the trial court found in its special verdict in this matter that these were the statements of a man who was bragging and relishing the crime committed. So the Arizona court, on one hand, finds that this person uh, was compelled to confess, but on the other hand, finds, uh, makes a finding that he is bragging and relishing at the time that he's actually confessing that. That is simply Isn't it two different courts. Isn't it the Supreme Court that found it was coerced? And this is a, this is a finding by the trial court. This is a finding by the trial the court. The trial court that was not coerced, didn't it? That is correct. The trial. There's court. no inconsistency there, is there? I disagree respectfully, Your Honor, because this language by the trial court and the special verdict about him bragging and relishing right. was affirmed on appeal. The Arizona court basically adopted that finding regarding his state of mind at the time he was confessing by affirming the trial court's They refer to this specific language in the... the They do quote this language in in the the opinion, which is, I was referring to the opinion at at A76. That is a a portion of their opinion in which they quote the trial court's finding. And in in regard to... to That was in, in connection with affirming the aggravating circumstance, right? That is correct, Your Honor. It was in connection with that. In in looking at one of the most important factors in determining whether uh, Fulminante's state of mind was such that he could have been coerced by a promise into confessing, the court has to look not only at the fact that he did confess in response to the promise, but at at his characteristics. And as noted in the briefs, he's a middle-aged sociopath. He's low to low average, low to average intelligence. He had absolutely no mental or physical problems that uh, would have uh, made him especially susceptible to. How big was he? Uh, the pre-sentence report indicates anywhere from five foot three to five foot five, and around 120 pounds. So. How big was this? Uh, the informant. 
I'm not aware. I, that didn't, as far as I'm aware, that did not come out. In it is, there is no dispute about the fact that everybody seemed to understand the informant was in a position through his connections or otherwise to provide protection to somebody who might otherwise be violently treated by inmates. Isn't that right? Yes, he was. Going back to Mr. Fulminante's characteristics, he had been in prison before. This was the third time he was in prison. He had six prior felony convictions. And interestingly enough, the first time he was in prison as a young man at age 26, when he felt fear of other inmates, all he did was ask to be put in protective custody, and it was done. There is simply nothing to indicate that if he was, was actually in fear, he could have done that in this case. None of the prison authorities uh, were apparently aware that he was receiving any kind of treatment, or this rough treatment was certainly not bad enough that he would complain to authorities. And another aspect of, of Mr. Fulminante's character and, and part of the whole circumstances of this case are his relationship with this prison informant. He wanted to be like Saravola. He wanted to become involved in organized crime. And although unbeknownst to him, Saravola was acting as an informant, to Mr. Fulminante's knowledge, he was still actively involved in organized crime. And Fulminante, after becoming acquainted with Saravola, actually agreed to commit some contract killings after his release from prison. So this is the man that, that he wants to work for. May I just clarify one thing? I'm not sure. Were any of these, these uh, confessions taped, or were there, are this all the testimony of Sarvarola as to what the man told him? None of them were taped, Your Honor. They were they were made in the prison. Uh, Sarvarola was not wearing a. So the whole the, the facts that, that you describe are entirely based on the testimony of, of this individual. Yes, yes, they are, Your Honor. And also the there was the second confession, which was also not taped but which was made to the Donna Saravola later. Whom? To Donna Saravola. The The wife? uh, That's correct, the prison informant's wife. That that, uh, confession wasn't with any kind of an inducement at that time? No, Your Honor, other than, than the inducement that Donna Saravola inquired of Mr. Fulminante when he got in the car to drive to Pennsylvania, why aren't you going back to Arizona? Don't you have family there? Whereupon he launched into this diatribe about the the young child he had killed there and the terrible things he did to her. So it was certainly not the result of any sort of inducement. Well, did the Supreme Court of Arizona reach the question whether the second confession was, was or was not the fruit of the poisonous tree? Yes, they did, Your Honor, and in their opinion, they determined that it was not the fruit of the poisonous tree that was fully litigated both at the trial court, the trial court ruled against Mr. Fulminante on that, and it was relitigated in in the direct appeal. The Arizona court found, no, it was not. It was too attenuated. It was six months later after he was no longer in need of any kind of protection. And then, then on rehearing, the Supreme Court of Arizona said that the admission of, of an involuntary confession can't be harmless error. And so they reversed uh, it. I suppose they didn't have to go back under that line of reasoning and decide again whether the second confession was the fruit of a poisonous tree. The admission of the first confession made the, the judgment infirm or the, the, the verdict infirm. It did. However, the court did 
look at that question again because it was raised in the defendant's motion for reconsideration, and the court in its second, in its supplemental opinion, specifically rejected that claim again, saying none of his other claims are any good, just this one regarding harmless error. Thank you. you. I'll reserve my time. Very well, Mrs. Jarrett. Uh, Mr. Larkin, we'll hear from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The rule of automatic reversal applied by the Arizona Supreme Court in this case is an anachronism. It was adopted at a time when rules of automatic reversal were the only ones known to the law. Is it the law? It is. It is still the law today. In that respect, the Arizona Supreme Court was correct. The Arizona Supreme Court initially ruled that it was legally permissible to find that the error in this case was factually harmless. On reconsideration, they changed only the first half of that ruling. In fact, if you look to page C2 in the petition appendix, the Arizona Supreme Court lists all the claims that were made in the rehearing petition. One of them was that the error was not factually harmless, and that, as my colleague has pointed out, was among the claims that was rejected on rehearing. So what we have before you then, Your Honor, is a case in which the only reason the Arizona Supreme Court held this error to be prejudicial was it felt that this Court's precedents foreclosed it from giving effect to its finding that the error was harmless as a factual matter. Since Chapman v. California 20 years ago first held that harmless error analysis can apply to constitutional violations, this Court has often made clear that the harmless error doctrine is in fact the rule and no longer the exception. The law, therefore, generally speaking, is the exact opposite of where the law stood in 1897 when the Bram case was decided. It is Bram, in fact, that is the source of the rule that the Arizona Supreme Court invoked in this case, and Bram, in fact, describes the only category of evidence that is today automatically and in every case accepted from harmless error analysis. Interestingly... Mr. uh, Larkin, the, the Supreme Court of Arizona at least articulated in its opinion that it was applying the totality of the circumstances test, didn't it? Uh, yes, on the, on the question of whether the statement to Anthony Saravola was in fact coerced, they, right. said, they said that they were applying the totality of circumstances test. Right. But on that issue, the first issue in this case, what they treated as decisive was the fact that there was an offer of protection made. And they treated as dispositive the ruling in the other half of the Bram case, that when such an offer is made of any type, a confession is necessarily involuntary. So, actually, the Arizona Supreme Court invoked both halves of the Bram decision in this case to upset the conviction. The first half being that any offer renders a statement involuntary. The second half being that any involuntary statement has to require a reversal. Interestingly, neither respondent nor supporting amicus defends the rationale given in the Bram case for that rule, and we think they're right not to do so. Bram rested on a perceived logical contradiction between the propositions that a particular item of evidence could be at once probative and yet harmless. In fact, today, under modern principles of appellate review, there is no longer any such contradiction. A particular piece of evidence can be probative if it has any tendency to prove or disprove a matter in issue. But the same piece of evidence can, in fact, be harmless if it is generally insignificant in the context of the entire record. And it is in the context of the entire record that the harmlessness determination must be made, while it is in the context of that particular piece of evidence that the relevancy determination must be made. In fact, under present principles of appellate review, 
The contradiction that troubled the court in Bram exists only when a particular item of evidence is the sole proof of a disputed issue in the case. In all other circumstances, the contradiction does not exist. The question then becomes whether there is... Do you think that that's why Bram reached that conclusion, or did it see the logical contradiction uh, in every case? Well, Bram didn't have before it the rule that harmless errors could be uh, overlooked. I recognize that, but we're talking about the, the logical contradiction that the, the court thought that it saw in, in Bram. Did it see that just because the confession was the only piece of evidence? No, I think it, it saw it because any piece of evidence, whether or not it was a confession, would, would lead to that type of contradiction. In other words, they, the court at Bram thought that it was contradictory for a prosecutor to argue to the trial court that this evidence proves the defendant is guilty and then argue to an appellate court that the same evidence doesn't prove he's guilty or at least didn't have any prejudicial effect because there was plenty of other evidence in the case. Are you saying, Mr. Larkin, just to be sure I get it, that if this, this case were retried without the Savarola confession admitted, but all the other evidence admitted, you can say that judges should state beyond a reasonable doubt that the man would be convicted? Yes. We think the error in this case was factually harmless and that the court in this case should use this vehicle for saying that errors like this should no longer be accepted from the harmless error. So the result is purely to save the cost to the state of a retrial. It has nothing to do with the ultimate outcome and being sure you get the right verdict. You'll get the right verdict anyway. Well, I'm this not... This guy will go to jail no matter what we do. Well, I, we're, not, we're not in this case interested in the particulars of this particular judgment. Well, but true in every comparable case. Well, in every case where any erroneously admitted evidence is harmless, you will automatically have the verdict uh, stand. If that's, what you, if that's what you're getting at, then I would certainly well, and, agree. Well, not only that, but if you lose yeah, on retrial and if the evidence is excluded, in every case we would be able to say beyond a reasonable doubt he would be reconvicted because the other evidence is so po powerful. Sure. And that, that's the sort of inquiry that so, you're so assuming the jury does its not, duty. Correct. I mean, the, the assumption you have to make is the jury is going to be rational. That's the type of assumption you have Mr. to make. Larkin, can you conceive of a confession that would not be considered harmless error because it was such a bad way of getting it? Absolutely. Well, I, I would certainly conceive... Well, was that considered in this case? They, they, did, they did not consider whether the means by which the confession was obtained affected the, pre the well, degree of prejudice. And that restraint is there on the officers of government in Arizona to prevent them from denying people their rights. Well, Your Honor, what you're talking about is a question... Is there any restraint at yes. all? What you're talking about is a question of deterrence. Applying a harmless error rule is not likely to lead to an increased number of coerced confessions because no police officer, at the time he is deciding whether and how to you question someone... You that you and the members of this court are better able to decide that than the Supreme Court of Arizona? Well, this court is certainly better able to decide whether, generally speaking, such errors can be harmless, because this court is the only court that has the power to overrule the Bram case. But how do we know what goes on in Arizona? Well, the way we know what goes on is to rely on what the findings. tell us. No, it's to rely on the findings made by the trial court and the appellate court. It, it is true. A great many confessions will be prejudicial, but it does not follow that every confession will be prejudicial. In deciding, it depends on what you mean by the error is harmless. You, you, you've, you've described it as though it means another jury, a different jury, would have come to the same conclusion. But what if I think that the test of harmlessness should rather be, would this jury, did, did this jury rely upon, substantially rely upon that evidence? 
well, in reaching its conclusion. And if I believe that the latter is the test, there may be some sense in a special rule for coerced confessions because nothing is as is, is, is conclusive as a confession. The jury might well not even look at the rest of the evidence. They say, you don't have to worry about the rest. You have, you have the man's confession right here. I have several responses. First, in the Milton and Satterwhite cases, the court said that confessions obtained in violation of the Sixth Amendment can be harmless. There's no material difference between a Sixth Amendment and a Fifth Amendment violation if the question is whether the defendant was prejudiced. The question of prejudice doesn't focus on the label given to the violation. It focuses on the substance of the statement and the context in which the statement is made, which is the remaining evidence in the case. In either case, the question is, was this error likely to have had a material effect on the jury? I agree. The question is whether this jury was prejudiced, whether the defendant was prejudiced before this jury by the error. That's not, I think, different from the answer I gave to Justice Stevens, because generally what you're trying to decide is what a reasonable jury would have uh, taken in response to this sort of uh, mix of evidence before it. Yeah, but this, but this jury, when, when you have this kind of a confession, might have gotten together in jury room and said, look, it, we have this confession, we don't even have to look at the rest of the evidence. Don't you think this confession is nothing? They all say, yes, that's right. So the jury never really even considered the rest of the evidence. Well, but the same argument, Your Honor, could be made in response to any erroneously admitted evidence. And the court has held in numerous cases throughout the past uh, two decades that erroneously admitted evidence is a classic example of where the harmless error rule should apply, because the record is before the appellate court. There's no inquiry that has to be made into what should have been put into the record. You have the entire record. And you can have cases where there is an eyewitness identification, where there is testimony by Confederates who have now turned state's evidence, where there is videotape testimony. In the ca- one of the cases cited in our brief, Brown versus United States, there was a Bruton violation, but the police had pictures of the defendant committing the crime. It's impossible, I think, to say in those sort of circumstances that a reasonable jury would automatically have said, the confession is all I need to look at, I can just disregard the rest of the evidence. Our submission in this case simply asked the court on this issue to say that appellate courts in the state and federal system should be free to look into that question. We're not saying every confession will be non-prejudicial. We're just saying they should be allowed to make the inquiry. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Larkin. Mr. Collins, we'll hear now from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, in at least 25 opinions, this court has stated that a conviction can never stand when a coerced confession has been admitted at trial. And the court has stated many times that the reason for this is that no civilized system of justice can condone the use of a coerced confession. Mr. Collins, uh, the Arizona Supreme Court uh, found that this was extremely coercive, didn't they? Yes, it did. Uh, What evidence supports that? The fact that the informant, Mr. Saravola, told Mr. Fulminante that he was in jeopardy, his life was in jeopardy, that if he did not uh, agree to confess in exchange for protection, that Mr. Saravola was going to let the other inmates uh, go after Mr. Fulminante. So in order to save his own life, Mr. Fulminante had to confess. There was no other option. So it was indeed extremely coercive. Well, the other side disagrees mightily with that. Doesn't it? I think the record will su- support my position. And your position is borne out based on the stipulated testimony that was given to the trial judge, or does it re- uh, necessarily rely on what was testified? What was the testimony at trial? The testimony at trial was also that. Okay, first of all, at trial, the 
coercion involved in the confession was not considered greatly. Defense counsel did not pursue that. But there was. Do you, do you interpret the testimony that was given to the judge by stipulation uh, in connection with the suppression hearing fully sufficient to support the interpretation of the evidence that you've just given to Mr. Justice Blackman? Yes, I do. That Saravola told Fulminati that Fulminati's life was in danger? Yes, and that he had to confess in order to be protected. The stipulated facts are enough alone, but this Court does not have to look at just the stipulated facts. Well, I'm asking if you get uh, that interpretation just from the stipulated facts. Yes, I do. But this Court can also consider the other interviews and the court testimony, and it was clear from both uh, or from the informant, Mr. Saravola, that indeed he did require a confession in order for protection, in order to protect or in order for him to offer protection to Mr. Fulminante. In any event, uh, this court has held that no matter how overwhelming the other evidence in a case, even if there are other valid confessions, even when there have been five other valid confessions, that uh, a coerced confession is not subject to harmless error analysis. It is an absolute prohibition. And this absolute prohibition reflects the original intent of the framers of our Constitution. One of the main reasons... How, how, how can... Isn't that a rather extravagant statement since the concept of harmless error had never even been developed at the time that the framers sat in 1787? I believe it is not because Patrick Henry, who is largely responsible for the passage of the Bill of Rights, stated that the Bill of Rights was necessary so the authorities in this country could not at a later date allow the practices of the Inquisitions in Europe, allow coerced confessions. And he said it had to be an absolute prohibition in the Fifth Amendment. So he did not specifically know the harmless. What part did Patrick Henry play in drafting the Constitution? He is the one that advocated having a Bill of Rights. Well, largely he, he wasn't even there, was he? No, he did not sign it, but he is the one that insisted and was largely responsible for having it passed. Okay. Justice Frankfurter in Columb versus Connecticut discussed the fact that the founders of our country were well aware of the Star Chamber Act that had occurred in England and were well aware of the Inquisition's that had occurred on the continent of Europe. And because of those inquisitions, the framers of our Constitution insisted that we have a system of justice based on accusation and independent proof, not on inquisition. Patrick Henry. Uh, Mr. Collins, do you think that our recent holding in Perkins against Illinois has any bearing on whether this confession was coerced? I think the bearing that Perkins versus Illinois has is the court specifically noted there that the conduct was permissible by the undercover agent because there was no coercion. It was clear that this court held or was stating that if there was coercion, it would be a different situation, and that is what we have here. We do have coercion. Is, is there um, evidence in the record uh, to the effect that um, the defendant was in danger while in prison from the other inmates? Uh, Saravola did testify that, uh, that Mr. Fulminante was in danger from the other inmates. And in any event, the fact that Mr. Saravola himself told Mr. Fulminante that his life was in jeopardy made Mr. Fulminante believe 
that his life was in jeopardy, so he had to confess. So subjectively, Mr. Fulminante had to be in fear. Well, I guess the state's position is that he could have sought protective custody. The state makes that claim, but provides no evidence to support it. And indeed, the evidence tends to show it was not a viable alternative. When Mr. Fulminante was in prison previously, he could not psychologically handle the isolation of protective custody. He had to be transferred to a state psychiatric hospital. And the psychologist at that hospital determined that Mr. Fulminante should remain at the state hospital until his term expired because he could not handle being sent back to the prison, the general population, or to protective custody. So that was not a viable alternative. And in any event, stating that Mr. Fulminante could uh, seek protective custody ignores the actual setting of when and where the confession occurred. It occurred in the evening in the prison yard. If Mr. Fulminante had not confessed immediately that evening, quite likely he would not have made it out of the prison yard alive. That evening, Mr. Saravola came over to Mr. Fulminante and said, your life is in jeopardy. I will protect you from the other inmates if you confess. Can, can you again tell me where that is in the record? I can't. It, it would be during Mr. Saravola's testimony. He say your life your life is in jeopardy? Was that I believe those are the exact words, your life is in jeopardy. Mm-hmm. You have to realize Mr. at least one statement Mr. Saravola made. Mr. Saravola stated six different ways of how he told Mr. Fulminante that he had to confess. But one of them was, yes, his life was in jeopardy. Do you think the Arizona Supreme Court relied essentially on the Bram decision in drawing its conclusions about the coercive nature no, the first confession. No, I do not think so at all. Uh, they correctly applied the totality of the circumstances test. They relied on the other cases uh, since Bram where this court has held that uh, where there is a coerced confession, the case must be reversed, automatic reversal. The state contends that the state of Arizona was relying on the mere promise language of Bram. That is absolutely incorrect. That is taken out of context. If you read the opinion of the Arizona Supreme Court, they cite Bram only for the language or other uh, undue influence. They underline that language. They specifically do not underline a promise. The Arizona Supreme Court clearly did not hold that this was a situation in which there was a promise. They considered it was violence, a threat of violence. Well, Bram talks about promises, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And any inducement, no matter how small? Yes, it does. Well, I suppose you're relying on that, too. No, I'm not. This court has gone in other cases and stated that not every promise, however slight, is an inducement. Or any inducement. Or any inducement. But this court has never backed off since Bram of any use of physical coercion to obtain a confession. This is not just a mere slight promise situation. So Bram is still applicable today as far as physical coercion. You're, you're not limiting the rule you propose we adopt to uh, what I might call really coerced confessions. I mean, I, I assume you would, you would continue to apply Bram to uh, a failure to give the Miranda warning, which uh, causes the uh, confession to be deemed coerced. Is that right? No, I do not think we have to go that far with Bram. But when you get to the threat of physical violence in exchange for a confession, when it is that serious, it still applies. Mm-hmm the situation we have in this case. 
You don't you don't make that distinction in your brief that I recall, do you? Uh, I mean, I coerced confession is sort of a term of art, and, and it includes any confession that, uh, for example, does, doesn't comply with the requirements of Miranda. You think we can draw a line between uh, some other confessions and a really coerced confession, is that it? Well, many courts have talked about a violation of Miranda being a coerced confession, mm-hmm. and that was part of the problem with the original opinion of the state of Arizona, the Supreme Court right. of Arizona. They confused coerced confessions that are in violation of Miranda with truly coerced confessions, right. such as we have here. So a violation of Miranda is not what I'm considering a truly coerced confession, no. The government, I suppose, that if, uh, that if the court had relied on this, any inducement, however small or any promise, that uh, the court was wrong. If it determined that it was a very slight promise, it's not an absolute rule that every slight promise requires automatic reversal. That's true. But this is not a slight promise case. Patrick Henry stated that if this country ever came to condone the use of coercion to obtain confessions, that, quote, we are then lost and undone, end quote. And the prohibition against The use of coerced confessions was of such importance to the framers of our Constitution that the Fifth Amendment was written that no person shall be compelled in any criminal proceeding to be a witness against himself. It is an absolute prohibition. There are no exceptions. There certainly is not an exception saying unless a judge later determines that it is harmless error. And it is difficult to envision any exception that would have more horrified the framers of our Constitution than that exception. Or with that exception, it allows, in a given case, the practices of the inquisitions in Europe to be condoned in this country if a judge or a panel of judges later determines that it was harmless error. In other words, whether the use, the conduct involved in coerced confessions is condemned or condoned would be decided on a case-by-case basis. The framers of our Constitution would not have tolerated that. The state of Arizona is requesting this court to nullify the intentions, the original intent of the framers of our Constitution, and considering the right involved, one that carries as much weight as any right in our country, it would be expected that the state of Arizona would have an extremely compelling reason. The state does not. The only reason the state of Arizona has for requesting that this, that harmless error analysis be applied is so the state of Arizona does not have to retry Mr. Fulminante. So the state of Arizona does not have to give Mr. Fulminante the trial that the state deprived, the fair trial that the state deprived him of in the first place. Mr. Collins, on retrial, are, are, is the issue of whether the second confession um, is, uh, may come into evidence, is that resolved now against the defendant? I believe it would be because of the final ruling of the Supreme Court of Arizona. <coughs> and the inconvenience in retrying Mr. Fulminante carries slight weight here because a retrial would take less than two weeks and if, as the state of Arizona claims, there is this overwhelming evidence of guilt, there should be little difficult, difficulty for the state of Arizona. And the state's position ignores the great inconvenience to, to the entire judicial system if this court abandons 
the bright line rule that a conviction cannot stand when there is a coerced confession at trial. If this court abandons that rule, then the appellate courts will not just be reviewing the limited portion of the appellate record to determine if there actually was a coerced confession. Well, Mr. Collins, you could say that about the harmless error doctrine generally, that it does dispense with a bright line rule where any error was made reversible. But the, the judgment of, of certainly the state courts and of this court for 20 years has been that in many cases harmless error is a permissible doctrine. That is correct regarding rights carrying lesser value. It's not. It's a, of course, it's a, it's a question of wh- whether this right is to be properly numbered among that one bundle or another. To an extent, that is true. This right is of the highest magnitude in our society. Therefore, the state needs a much more compelling reason than they would need as far as harmless error analysis being applied to some other right, well, such as a Miranda Mr. violation. Mr. Collins, in the case of Milton against Wainwright, uh, this court uh, indicated that admission of a confession allegedly obtained in violation of Fifth as well as Sixth Amendment rights uh, could be harmless error. The Milton versus Wainwright. And I think that case has been relied on by some lower courts, has it not? Yes, it was relied on by the Arizona Supreme Court in its original opinion. That is how they got into trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, the dissenting opinion on the second opinion of the Arizona Supreme Court still relied on Milton versus Wainwright, saying that it held that coarse confessions can be subject to the harmless error doctrine. Well, Cases since Milton versus Wainwright by this court have noted that it only dealt with Sixth Amendment rights, not coerced confessions. And indeed, it would be rather strange that if Milton versus Wainwright reversed over 25 previous cases holding that harmless error doctrine cannot be applied to coerced confessions, it would be rather strange that Milton, Milton versus Wainwright does not discuss one single case, does not discuss any of those 25 other cases. Obviously, if it's reversing a long string, you a long line of cases. 25 other cases uh, simply have dicta to that effect, or are they direct holdings for your position? Some of them are dicta. Uh, many of them, probably a dozen, are direct holdings. Uh, the judicial, the inconvenience to the judicial system uh, would be great because when Wayne harmless error, the appellate courts are required to review the entire record on appeal. Often that entails thousands of pages. It is a lengthy and complex process. So judicial economy dictates against the state's position. Now in dozens of cases involving coerced confessions, this court has never approved of the conduct involved when you have a coerced confession. If the court now condones that conduct by applying the harmless error doctrine, it has the same practical consequences as if the court approves the use of coerced confessions. As this court has stated many times, the conduct must be condemned. To do otherwise is fundamentally unfair to the defendant who is denied a fair trial. It undermines public confidence in the entire judicial system because it has the appearance that the courts will look the other way when the police have coerced a confession from a suspect. It has the appearance of impropriety or has the appearance 
of impropriety because it appears that the courts will look the other way when the police do not enforce or when the police violate the very laws that they are to enforce. And it signals to the police that if they have a suspect but insufficient evidence to obtain a conviction, they have nothing to lose by obtaining a coerced confession. The conduct may later be condoned. This should not be tolerated. The matter presently before this court is a classic case of the threat of violence being used to overbear the free will of a suspect who previously has refused to confess. In 1982, Anthony Saravola was a uniformed police officer in the New York City area. He was also working for the Colombo organized crime family. He was involved in loan sharking. He used violence to collect payments on extortionate loans made by the Colombo family. Because of this activity, in the fall of 1982, he was arrested by FBI agent Walter Tacano. Tacano knew of Saravola's extensive and violent criminal history. Tacano knew that Saravola was a corrupt and violent man, but despite this fact, Tacano chose to make Saravola a paid government informant and sent him after targeted suspects. You think that he could hold off all the other inmates? Yes, there is a serious possibility that he could because of his connections with organized crime. The other inmates were afraid to do other than what he said, also because of his power on a powerful prison commission. He did appear to have evidence in the record to that effect. Uh, not at trial, but at the hearing, uh, I believe the prosecutor admitted that fact and in the interviews that is discussed, interviews that were attached to a motion at the pretrial hearing. Now, Agent Tacano knew that Saravola had resorted to any means, including the use of violence, to obtain payments for the Colombo family. Decano also knew that Saravola would, would resort to any means necessary to obtain confessions from targeted suspects. That is, if Saravola was paid well enough. And indeed, the FBI did pay Saravola well. So it is entirely predictable that once Arreste Fulminante became a targeted suspect, that we would have a coerced confession in this case. And I am not claiming there is anything wrong with using undercover agents, using government informants. That's a proper police procedure. But there is everything wrong when the government sends a known violent criminal after a citizen. But he wasn't uh, so susceptible to Donna, was he? Well, when the confession was made to Donna Saravola, uh, Anthony Saravola was also present then. It is not fleshed out in the record how much that affected things, but certainly well, there was influence. That, uh, you were foreclosed to challenge the second for confession. I'm afraid legally I am. On the facts, I disagree with how the Arizona Supreme Court ruled. What if uh, the defendant had asked for counsel? And this is the only degree of coercion there is. He, they tried to interrogate him. He asked for counsel. Uh, uh, they said, all right, we'll send for counsel, uh, but they continued to interrogate him before counsel arrived. Now, we would consider that under our cases a coerced confession. Would that be the kind of coerced confession that you think a harmless error would not apply to? Uh, 
I think, as I recall, I don't recall the name of the case that this court has applied it in similar situations to that, where... Is that a really coerced confession or not? No, by no means. No one would be as offended by the fact they confessed because their lawyer wasn't next to them as they would if their very life was in danger. Having a lawyer is nowhere near uh, the same value as saving your life. And the problem with FBI agent Takano's conduct in this case is that no citizen can truly feel safe if at at Takano's whim he can send Saravola, a violent man, against any citizen. And if he pays Saravola well enough, Saravola is going to obtain a confession from just about any person. Now, for all of his extensive and violent criminal activity, Saravola received a total sentence of 60 days in prison. And he was serving this sentence in October of 1983 when he met another inmate named Oreste Fulminante. Rumors were spreading through the prison that Fulminante had murdered his stepdaughter. Because of those rumors, his life was indeed in jeopardy. The other inmates wished to harm him. Saravola told Takano of these rumors, and Takano requested that Saravola find out more information. So Saravola then employed the guise of friendship to obtain a confession. He befriended Fulminante, was with him every day for weeks, for several hours every day. Saravola, on numerous occasions, asked Fulminante if he committed the murder. Fulminante continually denied any involvement. So it was clear that Saravola's attempt at deception was not going to work. With two weeks left before Saravola was to be released from prison, FBI agent Takano made a personal visit to the prison and specifically told Saravola, quote, get me the whole story, end quote. Clearly, Saravola wanted a confession. And within hours of this directive, Saravola did get a confession. It was better than 24-hour service. Now, that same evening after the personal visit by Takano, Saravola approached Fulminante in the prison yard. And again, he reminded him that his life was in jeopardy, that he had to confess in order to get protection. Now, the state of Arizona has conceded that this, in their briefs, that this conduct was extremely, or was objectively coercive. However, Can you tell us generally where in the, in, in the transcript the, the testimony is that, that you're referring to now? I realize you said you don't have a page cited. Is it somewhere in the joint appendix? Yes, it would be during Saravola's uh, testimony, I believe, approximately page 12 or so of his uh, testimony. Thank you. Now, the state claims that even though objectively we have coercive conduct, that this court should find that it was not coercive for the fact that Mr. Fulminante did not testify that he was in fear. Well, first of all, this argument ignores the fact that the burden of proof is on uh, the state. Mr. Fulminante is not required to produce any evidence. Is, Is that a federal rule, Mr. Collins? Yes, this court has held that the burden of proof is indeed to prove a, a statement by the defendant admissible? Well, to prove that the conduct was coercive, the burden is on the state. Well, but uh, to, 
to prove it was not coercive. I said the state certainly has no motive in to, pr- to proving the conduct was coercive. It's oh, a, yes, uh, that, uh, is, that is their burden to prove that it is not coercive. I'm sorry, that's correct. Not coerced. Not coerced, yes. Now, the state's argument also ignores this court's holding in Lee versus Mississippi, in which the defendant denied confessing. But the court still held that the confession was coerced. This court held to do otherwise would be a denial of due process. And the main flaw with the state's argument is it ignores the facts themselves. There was no reason for Saravola to approach Mr. Fulminante, tell him his life was in danger, offer protection, unless he was trying to obtain a confession. And indeed, you should consider the relationship that Saravola had with Takano. Because of the informant relationship, Saravola had the motive, intent, and certainly the plan to obtain a confession. It was not an accident or mere coincidence, as the state claims, that uh, Mr. Saravola just mentioned the fact of Mr. Fulminante's life being in danger and the fact that he needed protection. And there's no conceivable reason in this case why Mr. Fulminante would have continually denied any involvement in this murder for over a year and why he had denied for weeks any involvement to Mr. Saravola, despite constant questioning. There is only one conceivable reason why Mr. Fulminante confessed, and that that was because he was in fear. And indeed, in order to avoid torture or death, any person whether innocent or guilty in Mr. Fulminante's situation, would have confessed. As the Arizona Supreme Court correctly held, quote, this is a coerced confession in every sense of the word, end quote. The framers of our Constitution would never have allowed the use of this coerced confession. They certainly would not have done so merely to save the state of Arizona the inconvenience of giving Mr. Fulminante a fair trial. There has been no change in our society that today compels us to abandon one of our most fundamental protections under the Bill of Rights. If there are no further questions, I will sit down. Thank you, Mr. Collins. Uh, Mrs. Jarrett, you have four minutes remaining. Thank you, Your Honor. Just briefly, and I would uh, direct the court to page... 63 of the joint appendix, or excuse me, page 83 of the joint appendix is is the trial testimony of Anthony Saravola, in which he he testifies that after he and the defendant are walking on the track, and after the defendant had, Fulminante has been receiving rough treatment, Saravola tells him, "You have to tell me about it in order for me to give you any help." That is the sum total of this promise of protection, the implied promise of protection, which Fulminante claims was so incredibly coercive. Well, what, what about the language that the uh, respondent here relies on, and perhaps the Arizona, that you're telling him his life was in danger? Your Honor, that is not reflected any place in the record that I am aware of. The only reference that is... There, there was no statement by Saravola to Fulminante that his life was in danger? 
No, not as reflected in, in Saravola's testimony. There is one reference in the record to that, but it was made during oral argument on the on the voluntariness motion. By, uh, by a, oral argument by a lawyer? Yes, the prosecutor did uh, indicate he was paraphrasing something of Saravola's and paraphrased it in that manner, but it is the state's position that it was not any kind of concession. He may have misspoke himself about that. At any rate, there's nothing in the record that supports the claim that Saravola told Fulminati that his life was in danger. There's nothing in the tr- testimony. Nothing in the testimony, Your Honor, either the stipulated uh, statement of facts or in Saravola's testimony. But what, what do you understand the testimony you called our, our attention to to mean? You, you have to tell me about it for me to give you any help. What does that mean? It means that if, if Fulminante needs help from the other prisoners who are giving him the rough time, uh, then he can call on Saravola. But uh, there's no indication, Your Honor, that this rough time that uh, Fulminante was receiving was, in fact, any sort of physical thing that was being done to him. There's no indication that, other than perhaps ostracizing him and ignoring him, that the other prisoners are, are doing anything to him. You think that's what they mean by a rough time in prison? They call you names? <laughs> <laughs> well, Your Honor, there's, there's nothing in the record to indicate otherwise in this case, and it certainly did not deter Fulminante from taking his evening stroll around the track with his friend Saravola. So, with his friend Saravola. That is correct, Your Honor. If he had truly been in danger, he would have uh, perhaps been seeking help from prison authorities. I don't know. Would you think if you had the choice between going into isolation or walking around freely with your friend Saravola, you'd say I'd rather be in isolation? Well, that's a choice he had to make, right. and I think that's a very good point, Your Honor. He did have that choice, right. and uh, as, as defense counsel has argued... I would argued, think if Saravola is, I don't know, what we'd, the mystery to me is how big was this guy, but anyway, um, <laughs> he apparently felt perfectly safe when he was with Saravola. And then I don't understand why you say he should have run and said, asked the warden to put him in isolation, if he's already got all the protection he needs. Well, Your Honor... I'm saying that he had a choice if he's to it. He could have continued to deny that he committed this crime. Right. He's not compelled to confess to this. He had the choice. Saravola is saying, tell me what happened and I'll protect you. But if, if you don't tell me, there, there was no threat that anything would be done to him, that he would be in any danger from Saravola. Thank you, Mrs. Jarrett. The Thank case you. is submitted.